0: on this episode of Starting Point. That person who has been in the field for a while, has been through many of the things that you've been through, has asked many of the questions that you are asking yourself about where you should go, what you should do next. Uh, they can help you with everything from interview prep to looking at your resume. They can do, mentors are there to help you and they can be sponsors for you, put a good word in for you. So be curious, know all you can know about your field, do your job, do it well, and find a mentor.
1: That's Gloria Gooseby talking about the importance of having a mentor, as a key to success in annual giving and educational fundraising. I'm Dan Allenby, welcome to Starting Point. Hello everyone, and welcome to the program. I am so pleased to have with us today, my colleague and friend, Gloria Goosby, who is the director of annual giving at Furman University. Gloria, welcome to the program.
0: Hi, Dan. Thank you for allowing me to chat today.
1: We've been looking forward to having you on for quite a while. You've been doing good work with AGN in terms of teaching and uh, facilitating workshops, and we're we're really appreciative of that, Uh, and it's a real pleasure to have you on the show. I'd love to go back to your starting point and find out how it all began for Gloria Gooseby. So uh, why don't you do that? Take me back to a time before you even got into this field of annual giving and educational fundraising. What were you doing? Who was Gloria?
0: Right. Yeah. So I uh, was temping. <laughs> I worked at Express and then I was also temping for Comcast Spotlight, which is the advertising art for Comcast. I had two jobs um, and in doing that uh, really needed a full time job. That was right after I graduated from college. And um yeah, I was applying in all types of spaces. Um applied to my alma mater for a role that was um I didn't even know what it was. Is phone coordinator.
1: So, so going back to your alma mater. So uh college for you was where?
0: Georgia Southern University?
1: Georgia Southern. Did, Home you, grow, the did Eagles. you grow up? Did you grow up in the South?
0: I grew up in the Southeast. Yeah. So I am a military brat, you know, so I've lived a lot of different places, but I, you know, I'm from the South. That's where my family is from. And my mother retired in uh, Liberty County, Georgia, which is Southeast Georgia. And um, I visited Georgia Southern a couple of times and I had the Hope Scholarship. So it was right up the road. It was an easy thing for us. I liked the school. And so that's where I applied.
1: How did you go into college knowing what it was that you wanted, that you thought you wanted to do when you got out? And that all changed or was of course,
0: there? yes, I knew it all when I was 18. Right. So when I when I hopped in um, my major is broadcasting production um, and I thought that I would do one of two things. Either I thought I was going to get into radio and somehow become an A&R at a record label. I was very I had very strong feelings about that.
1: Well, here um, you are on radio now. So you of you, you <laughs> right, you You've yeah. arrived.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, my dad would be really happy about that because he definitely didn't want me to major in broadcasting. Right. So I um, wanted to do that or I wanted to uh, just continue to do like uh, communication studies work and go on to teach uh, at uh, the college level about the intersections of culture, communication and technology. So I was really interested in that. Um, I did not do either of those things, as you can see, (laughs) Uh, but that was my original interest when I got into school. All right.
1: And then you got out of the school and you just weren't sure. So that's what brought you to temping. You were trying yeah, to-
0: yes. And so I'm, I'm temping. I'm just trying to make my way. I'm, I'm living um, at the time in Savannah, Georgia. It was expensive. And I was like, I just need jobs. Right. And so that's that's how I was earning my living. Um, I thought I didn't want to be in southeast Georgia anymore. So I applied to all types of places, mostly in student affairs. I didn't want to work in higher ed. I thought that that would be an easy launching pad to get into a graduate program. So I was applying to schools all over the place. Uh, the one that responded was my alma mater. When I applied for that thing called the phoneathon coordinator, and so <laughs> went in an interview, and they were gracious enough to give me a chance.
1: So you started in the phoneathon.
0: I started in the phoneathon. I did.
1: And I did. where did it go from there?
0: Well, um, I can tell you. It, I can tell you what it was supposed to be. It was supposed to be a pit stop, as I mentioned, right? So I was supposed to do that for a couple of years I had these great hours, right? So my hours were 1 to 10 p.m. Loved that. I could uh stay up late, get up even later to get to work. Uh really loved that schedule. I loved working with students, and so that was really appealing to me. And then just like all the numbers and the segmentation and the messaging, that was very appealing to me. Definitely uh didn't think I would like it as much as I did though. And so didn't end up going off and using it as a pit stop, pit stop to go to graduate school. I just, I just stayed in annual giving.
1: I, I, the way you're describing it, I think annual giving is, is perfect for somebody like you. I mean, if you, if you like students, if you like education, if you like numbers.
0: It's, it's been a good fit. That's why I've been around so long.
1: <laughs> and So now you're running the annual giving program at Furman University. But what happened in between that first job running a phone and, and how you got here?
0: Yeah. So I, I was the phone coordinator there for like seven years and it was a small program. I mean, we, you know, every year we bring in about $250,000 of unrestricted.
1: How many students?
0: We had on a given night, eight to 10 students. So it was, it, it was pretty small. Yeah Year round? It was year round. We found something to do about 42 of the 52 weeks we were doing something <laughs> to try to Either uh, raise money or do some thank you calling, do some RSVP calls. So we're really using it that way.
1: Now the the thon is. You and I have talked about it. It's changing a lot. It's changed a lot. Yeah. Um, is, is it going away? Is it just is it just changing? What? Yeah. What's your take on the phone-a-thon, having somebody who who started in it, like and like myself. I love I,
0: it. I, I don't think I knew it. that about you, Dan.
1: I no. Wasn't. Oh yeah, no. that was my first job uh, right out of college just like you. And I got, I lucked out. I got a job offer at American University. They, they actually offered me two jobs because the vice president at the time, she just started, they had been through some presidential transition. And it was, a, it was an advancement staff of probably like 30 people, 25, 30 people. And there was two people left. So she had all of this hiring to do. And so she offered me either the direct mail job or the phone job. Okay, and I took the phonathon job because I thought people, you know, yes. human human beings. Yes, um, but but I think human beings are being replaced now by technology. So I don't know. So tell me what where's where's phonathon right now in your mind? I mean, it's changed so much. Is it going away?
0: Yeah, I think it's just what you said. It's changing, right? So I would never run a year round program at my current institution. We just there's just nothing to justify a year round program here, right? Um, from the number of records we have to call to just what we're trying to accomplish with the program. So my short answer is, I don't think it's going away um, completely, but for some institutions, it's going away and maybe it needs to go away. For other institutions, it's transitioning to something else, right? So um, I know that we've had some conversations about what it would look like to give uh, callers a set portfolio of people that they're working through through the year, right? Um, Into a different type of model that would work in the full kind of, solicitation cycle, right? Where you're soliciting them, you're stewarding them, giving them updates and these really kind of high touch points um, that we usually reserve for other people. And so maybe it looks like that. Maybe they have one student that is just telling them about the student experience and how everything is going and then asking them for a gift at some point in the year. So
1: what are you thinking a lot about as it relates to the, this changing world of annual giving?
0: happen to think uh, the future of annual giving is is very tied to like this hyper-personalized experience for our donors, right? And so, um, as I was mentioning with the callers, um, experiences we used to reserve for donors who were either giving at leadership level or who have these, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, even millions of dollars in terms of uh, how we communicate with them and doing these regular kind of touch points. Um, I think that that is trickling down into our donors who are not leadership donors. And I think that that is a result of just how they're interacting with other organizations and businesses in their lives and, and how data can inform all of those decisions. And so. I mentioned, you know, when I go to my favorite online retailer, they know what I like to buy. They know my past purchases. They they know all these things about me. They're suggesting things that I may be interested in. I think that that is the future of what we're doing with annual giving as we try to become more, you know, what we like to call donor centric. Right. And as we try to really uh, kind of replicate. Uh, relationship building um, at this lower level instead of like this transactional feel that sometimes happens in annual giving and sometimes out of necessity, right? Um, That we're going to have to move away from that as we see the the donor totals go down. Like, how can we keep people in? How can we keep them interested and engaged? It's going to have to take a little more effort.
1: So it's using all of this data that we are now collecting.
0: Mm-hmm. and
1: I'm guessing also using all this technology that is at our fingertips.
0: Absolutely.
1: You use the word donor-centric because I, I think that word does get, it's one, it's one of these it's, buzzwords.
0: Yeah, that's why I was like donor, and they can't see me right, but I'm, I'm with my quotation marks with donor-centric.
1: It, there's lots of buzzwords, and I think when we get to these buzzwords, it's probably a good idea to dig into them a little bit because we just sort of, um, we gloss over them, um, it, but donor-centric, so it's taking what we as an institution might know about a donor because of the data that we have on the donor and using that to enhance their experience and enhance their relationship with the institution. Is that what you're saying?
0: I I think so. And, 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 you know, at the annual level, we've done that, right? We've done that for years. We've done that through email. We've done that through direct mail. What I'm suggesting is that we're just going to use another channel, personal solicitation, right, um, and and incorporate it there as well with people who aren't giving massive amounts of money um, in an effort to, like again, deepen that relationship and deepen their levels of engagement with the institution by um, even at lower gift levels, kind of allowing them to experience what we would typically reserve for uh, donors who give more.
1: I, I think the idea there is that it's not that we're Playing favorites for the sake of playing favorites, but historically at institutions, you only have so many resources. That's right. So, you're going to, just from a strategy standpoint, you're going to identify those donors who have high capacity and high inclinations to give. That's right. And you're going to dedicate resources to giving them a, a truly personal experience. A, a, you're going to build a relationship that they have with the institution. And you're going to do that in a very personal way because personal is going to be meaningful. And I think what you're saying now is there's an opportunity to expand that because of data and technology, and that's that's what you think the future of is I think giving. so,
0: and I think we have ways to scale that. I remember the first time I heard someone say they were working a thousand plus person portfolio. I laughed as someone who's done portfolio work, right? Because okay. that's not a portfolio that in the in the way that we traditionally think about portfolios. We think. You know, we have a tier one, tier two, tier three. We have some discovery visits, visits in there. We're thinking about all this kind of like face to face interaction and and like we're booking, you know, our anchor and then putting people around and we're going for call, and We're doing all of this. And so when I hear someone say one thousand people, it's like, how could you really get through that? But to your earlier point, technology, right, allows us to get through that, because with some of. Uh, the folks that we're talking about, right? they don't require a visit for the amount of money we're asking for, but they may require uh, this sense that we know them as an organization, care about what their thoughts are on what the organization is doing. We know them enough to share information that is specific to their interest based on what they've shared with us, either through a gift designation or other events they've attended. They do expect that. They may not need a visit, yeah. but they do expect that. So- we have technology now that will allow us to scale that experience for like, we can go further down and include more people. And, and so in that way, it's really great because it's inclusive.
1: Yeah. I, I, I would say even like, this is a great example of it. So you and I are how many States away? How many miles? Ooh, so, many states. <laughs> so we're having a conversation. And and so, you know, to an institution, uh, if you were going to you know have a meeting with someone, probably that person needed to have the that, and I'm speaking from a fundraising advancement standpoint, um, would have needed to probably have the, the gift capacity and the potential inclination, you know, the inclination to give to warrant that gift officer going and doing an in-person visit.
0: Right. And
1: uh, and now you you have the opportunity to have probably a more meaningful conversation over a Zoom call. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is where I don't think that the phone is going away because it's just sort of a it fits in there perfectly.
0: Yeah, it's evolving, right? Like all of our stuff has evolved.
1: Yeah. You mentioned portfolios. Have you and I ever talked about Dunbar's number?
0: No, I don't think so. You ever heard of it? No. Now I feel embarrassed that I don't
1: know. (laughs) Oh, don't be embarrassed. Uh, Maybe I'm making it up. No, here's my best attempt to describe it. I haven't thought about this in a while. So uh, Dunbar is the last name. He was a British anthropologist. And he came up with a concept, which was Dunbar's number. And it was 150. And the idea was that the human mind, the, the human beings only have the capacity to have meaningful, sustainable relationships with 150 others.
0: So I've heard that.
1: You have heard that,
0: but I didn't know. I didn't know that name. Yes. So this is ringing a bell.
1: Well, again, maybe I made it up. Everybody, <laughs> everybody who's listening out there can just sort of Google and, and fact check on me, but I think it's called dunbar's Number. But that you know, and so you mentioned portfolios, and so is the idea of a portfolio to maintain a relationship with these people? I don't think we need to come up with the answer here, but this whole concept of creating these personalized experiences and doing it more strategically using data, using different technologies, I think calls it into question.
0: Right. And and that's fair. I will say, you know, the other thing I think if we're doing our job the right way in annual giving, right, we are, we're helping build the pipeline, right? And so I view this as no, you know, I can't keep a relationship with a thousand people um, and the portfolio. Is that larger? We're going to hit all thousand people. No, it's just it's a calling pool, right? It's a contact pool, a contact list. But if we're doing our job properly, we're identifying people that can be pulled into relationship, right, with other gift officers. So we've we've had this relationship. We're putting in contact reports. We understand how they want to be involved with the university, where they feel they would make the most meaningful impact. And we can share that with our colleagues, right, that do have traditionally sized portfolios that can pull them into a closer relationship and really do that. Right. So I think you should also you can also. View it as like a uh, just discovery, just extra, you know. So it, we're doing some additional work um, here for our for our par- our colleagues, um, and in that way, going back to the phone-a-thon, again, you know, there's so much talk about like ROI on it, like what else can phone do, and that's another thing that we can use our students who are currently experiencing what's going on at our institutions, and that can really tell the best stories about how how it's impacting them, being a part of that community. Um, I think that that's another way that we can. Leverage those students for them to share. And, and then, of, of course, give them the tools they need. And also these uh, other full time staff that you may have doing this work. Right. To to pass them to people that can that can give them even more attention. Right. So that's how I would answer that. But yeah, because you do have a point. I can't, can't know. And that was that was why I recoiled at it. Right? I'm like one thousand people. That's not a portfolio. And just scoffing. Right. But I, I just see there's so many programs that are doing it and doing it well that I just I'm like, I think it's the future. <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, technology, it, it definitely does allow you to keep better track of larger numbers and, and keep information on them. And with that information, you can give them experiences. I guess you could have a sort of a very philosophical discussion about what a relationship is. And yeah. Is there a human component to that or are we just sort of handing over? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Maybe
1: that's a conversation for another day. But but I want to get back to you okay. and, and sort of your career. so. So you're, you're running a program now, you're there at, at Furman University or the director of the annual giving as it relates to your transition into your director role. I mean, is there anything that you think is, as you reflect on that, you know, going from that, the starting point in the field to being a director, is there anything that stands out as significant in that for you as an experience or did it just feel very, it just happened?
0: The thing that prepared me most to be a director, and I don't I don't know if anyone will be able to relate to this, but the thing that prepared me most to be a director was my time in phone It just, it just was because the part that gets kind of tricky, right, is managing people. And how do you how do you do that? Right. So when you're working with students, they're typically, you know, the phonothine, we try to make the phonathon kids the highest paid kids on campus, but they still They don't have to work that job. They have no aspirations of necessarily getting into uh, development. Maybe they will. Maybe they won't. They're majoring in something else. They have other plans for after school. And so how do you balance these? What I had was very kind of like specific goals that I expected them to hit and like retain them and like hold them accountable for hitting those goals or not hitting those goals. Um, What are the ways that how do you how do you treat them? What are the ways that you can? How are the ways you can motivate them? How are the ways you can make them feel appreciated? Because that's what I had to work with, right? To keep these part-time student students interested in doing this work and being excited about coming to work every day and feeling valued, even though they were only there maybe like you know nine hours a week. And so the things that I learned about managing and motivating people and how to like respect people that you that work on your behalf and that are doing the work that you're tasking them with carried well into being an associate director and being a director. I think that's the, you know, you have the tactical stuff you learn, like how to do how to manage the budgets and segmentation and mail. You have that stuff. And you'll have that stuff. But I think once you get to the director level, the people part is the part that gets that can get tricky for people, how to treat people and how to, how to make them feel valued. And so how to
1: lead. How to lead. Yeah, how to lead. Yeah.
0: How to motivate. So and I learned all that in Phonathon. Yeah. Yeah. I love it.
1: I love it as you sort of think about the the path that your career has taken any mentors uh or who's inspired you is there is there somebody out there that's that really had an impact on you in thinking about your career and and kind of how you how you'd even thought about Your future and and what you want to accomplish, who you want to be, who you want to model yourself after.
0: So I will say so. Yeah, I I have someone um, I value as a mentor and I just spoke with him earlier this week about something else I'm grappling with. Right. And but I feel like I have many mentors. I have like a little kind of board of directors. Right. So when I'm making like decisions about. Uh, hey, you know, I, I just need you. Can I do a gut check? Can I talk to you about this thing that I'm thinking or this move that I want to make? And what's your first thought? And so he's definitely on that list of people. And I didn't meet him until I was nearly 10 years in to my career. Um, before that, I can honestly say um, I didn't really have anyone that I could go to for the purpose of talking about what my next steps in this career should be. Um I think that's kind of how I ended up, you know, although I loved it and and I and I love phone. I think that's how I ended up being a phone defined coordinator for, for seven years, right? Like I think had I had a mentor, right, they may have nudged me and said, Hey, you can do this, but have you considered? I didn't have those types of questions happening, right?
1: Do you think you think of a mentor as somebody who asks you good questions?
0: One hundred percent Yeah. Yeah. I ask good questions, challenges you, right? Is willing to Correct you when needed about all types of things. So, um, and sometimes even about how you perceive yourself, right? So, sometimes when you think you're not ready for something, having someone who can uh, come alongside you and say, I, "I've seen your work. I've seen I've seen what you can do. You're more ready for that than you think." And I think you need to do it. You know. So, even someone who will challenge you on your perceptions of yourself, maybe maybe that, that might be the most important thing, <laughs> right? So to ask really good questions about why you're doing what you're doing.
1: Well, I heard you just say somebody that might push you a little bit too. Yes,
0: yes, yes, yes. And so um, I will I'll mention this person. I don't, you know. You can name say is...
1: names on this program. Can I, we say I, names? As long as they're nice things. We, we, yeah, this is i talking program.
0: about someone I, I regard very highly who was a mentor. Right. Drum roll. Yes. And this
1: person's name is?
0: Phil Cole.
1: Okay. Uh, and so what, what does Phil do?
0: At right now, he is a gift officer at Georgia Tech. Okay. And so when I met him, he was at another institution um, in the USG and, and he was working. And the way that I met him was I thought I was going to go work for him. And then I had an, and he offered me the job and I was very candid with him and said, hey, my boss just put in his resignation and this is an opportunity for me to be a director and I want to apply for this job. I didn't have the job. I just wanted to apply for it. And the way that I knew that he might be someone, aside from some other cues that I gotten, that I've needed to keep in touch with, was he said, yeah, you you do need to apply for that job. Really? He was like, I I completely agree. This is a good opportunity for you. And I hope it works out.
1: But it's really nice when when a mentor can be someone who's your boss. Yeah. I think that's especially nice when you're saying you've got somebody who sort of serves as a, as a mentor in many ways, and they, they never were your boss. They, never. Actually, you, you turn them down.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: For being your boss. But stayed a mentor. Yes. That's great. So um, staying on the topic of, of you and your career, and mm-hmm. um, I'm, I'm curious, uh, have you ever, you ever made any mistakes?
0: <laughs> yes, of course. Of course I've made mistakes.
1: Tell us about one, if you had one do over, or if there was something that, is there anything you regret? Uh, and I mean this in the sense of, you know, something that you learned from.
0: I think every annual giving person has had like the mailer that went wrong. You know what I'm saying? Or, you know, like a name was spelled incorrectly, or all the addresses were wrong or something like that. And I could certain I certainly have. So I think mine was doing like when I was managing my portfolio. Um, It was a little hard for me going back and forth between managing this portfolio and doing all the other things I had to do as a director of annual giving with like direct mail, email, like managing my team, getting our kind of programs up and running. Right. And so what I would do, which I I regret (laughs) And I don't even know if I want to share. This is kind of bad. But what I would do, what I regret is sometimes I didn't do all of the things I needed to do to follow up with folks in my portfolio. There weren't a lot of them, but there are like some specific instances I have where I'm like. I could have I could have. Messed that relationship up with the university, right, because I didn't do the proper follow up. I don't even know if I want to share that, but, that, but that's, that is that's what actually I'm probably
1: saying. why a lot of shops will divide those. You have your front line. I I know. And in annual giving, the beauty is you get to do a little of everything. Yeah. But it's very rare. I, I don't know, Gloria, if there's anybody out there who can manage a full portfolio. And I try to, and I will then, tell
0: you, Dan, when I was interviewing uh, for this role, one of the questions I asked was, is there a portfolio with this job? Because I wasn't going to take it. Like, I'm, I'm just not, because I want to do, I don't, splitting that attention is just so, it's a lot. It's a lot. Um, I, think
1: so anyway. I think that's very self aware of you. That I mean, and I think to to suggest that there are people that actually do both very well, I, I think it's probably misleading. I yeah. Mean, even at the very, this is why sometimes very good fundraisers and relationship managers are are terrible organizational managers. Yeah. Um, and I'm, you know, I don't, I don't want to get too specific, but it's it's mm-hmm. very difficult to find people that are really good at sort of managing operations mm-hmm. and then managing relationships. Right. I mean, you certainly have people that can do both. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think sometimes in annual giving, we're a little quick to just sure we we'll, yeah got a portfolio and we want you to do all the operations. We do a lot of searches, as you know, mm-hmm. and I, I we see this a lot when we mm-hmm. talk about oh, what are you looking for in a candidate? And they'll say oh, I want somebody who can manage a portfolio and raise the big dollars and at the same time you want somebody who's an expert in direct mail and can manage all these operations. <laughs> it's like you, you want your cake and eat it too. And yeah. you As you look around at others and you sort of look at some, let's say younger, uh, it doesn't happen, but, but newer people that there's a lot of people coming into this field right now. Um, there always has been a lot of turnover, but I think what's going on over the last couple of years in terms of you know, the challenges and losing people to other industries yeah, and and I'm speaking specifically of educational institutions and their advancement shops, especially annual giving. So there's a lot more, there's always been a lot of turnover. There's more than ever now and a real challenge like hiring people. So there's lots of new people coming in. Uh What do you think a common mistake is that you think people make? Like, what do you, when you like think of people that are newer to the field, is there anything that drives you crazy? Like, oh, I wish people didn't do this. I think they stay with their job long enough? I'm leading the witness here. You
0: are so funny. Yeah, Dan. There's a lot of that going on. I do. I do see a lot of uh moving around, especially like newer in your career, moving around. Maybe you've been there for a year, year and a half, right? And and you move on to the next space. And again, people have many reasons they do that.
1: I mean, do you think that's? I, I don't want to again. I don't want to put words in your mouth. You think that's? You think it's okay?
0: Um, it depends on it depends on the why. Um, and so that varies from person to person. But I will say that it, it does take you a little, this is annual giving, right? Like you you need a little more time to see a full year to even understand, as a new person in particular, to even understand the rhythm of things, like what you're doing from quarter to quarter and how everything works together. And not only what you're doing, as an annual giving team, but how that interacts with other, how does that interact with your alumni engagement team? How does it inter? Like, what's what's going on with your um, advancement services team? Your your gift officers? How are you interacting? What is the full cycle?
1: I think it, I think at least a year. We have somebody who, who's just started with us pretty recently here at AGN and she's a very quick learner. But I keep telling her it takes a year. I mean, I I remember my last job; it took me a year just to. and This is a big place. It took yeah, me a year to, to learn the acronyms of the different schools. I mean, I was like, C oh, A S <laughs> S M G S T H. What are those again? I had a little cheat sheet, but yeah. it's yeah. to sort of learn that stuff to where you know. And at that point, then you can start to make a difference. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of people they hop around, uh, mm-hmm. and some people judge that. I mean, the,
0: some the, people do judge that. I also wonder. So I'm going to be like on their side and paint this and be as gracious as possible, right? Sometimes if you need, you know, to make a little more money to get more responsibility or to advance, you do have to leave. Now, is that for like three drop job straight? Probably not. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? In terms of the organization. But uh, there are a lot of again motivators for people, people to leave. And some of them are valid.
1: Well, admittedly, early in my career, I did that. It it was less than 12 months and I was already looking for other jobs.
0: Ooh, damn. <laughs> wow.
1: But no, but in all honesty, the guy would, I admittedly, I would take a job. I I love that. I mean, I love the thrill of the search. Yeah. I mean, just the whole idea of what my next move was. And part of this program, I hope speaks to that. I mean, we're, we're hoping this podcast is going to shed a little light into the career path that people have taken in this industry and lessons that they've learned. But there is something very exciting. I think there should be about what your next job is. I almost got like addicted to it. I was like, I would love it and I'd be like nine months in and then I'd want to see my next job. Naturally, I wanted, you know, I was interested in things like title, how many people I was supervising. That was sort of a little bit of an ego boost, Um, how much money you make. And you can't, I don't think you can, you know, account that against people. But I, I also think on the flip side, enough of that and I started to get very unfulfilled. Where because I was always looking for the next thing, I don't think I was really appreciating the good stuff around me. So and I I think I sort of lost out on some of the gratification of really like becoming part of an institution.
0: I also wondered what you were able how you were able to say you contributed to the organization's success, right? Because when you're moving that quickly, what are you sharing about projects that you've done or that you're proud of or how you move things along as well? So that's another. Kind of thing I would, that's the reason I would caution someone against doing that, right? Is eventually someone's going to want to know that you can actually do the things. I agree.
1: I agree. And, and part of it's there's a supply and demand issue right now. I mean, like the demand for good people, the, there's just not, there's not that many of them. So they you kind of can pick and choose. Yeah. But I remember it was when I, fi- it was interviewing for, uh, it was an AVP job. So AVP of the annual giving.
0: When was that? Because those just cropped up. Those are that's a new thing. And they can sustain that, though. Right. Like I those are so I remember when I got in director of annual giving, that was it. If you were in some of these bigger, more sophisticated shops, maybe an executive director, AVP was like the top, top shop.
1: So back to this point, as I was sitting down and, and I'll name names, Scott Nichols. He was the senior vice president. He was interviewing me. And I was pretty far along in the process. And he said, you know, Dan, you know, if, you, if this job, if this works out, we need you for at least five years. And he kind of pointed to my resume. You can't this Ooh. job hopping that happened early on. Like, it's OK early on in your career. But you do hit a point where you start doing that later on in your career. It's going to work against you. So I think there's that. Mm-hmm. And then I think there is the fulfillment piece. Like if you really do want to like make a difference and, and feel good, you do need to stick around. But it's tough because, because I don't think institutions keep up. We've even done this research at AGN. You know, even the pay increases aren't even keeping up with inflation normally, much less in this environment where inflation's pretty profound.
0: And that's a valid reason to leave, right? <laughs> it's like you need you need a little more money and someone's offering it. And so.
1: All right. So I asked you the tough question about sort of mistakes that either you make or that you see other people making, but let's sort of flip it around, maybe to a little bit more positive. Um, talk about being proud. Yeah. What are you most proud of as you think about your career so far? And I think there's, you got a lot of career ahead. But.
0: I will say this. Um, I will, if I can share two, two examples. One is, um, one of the reasons I stayed in phone so long, as I mentioned, is because I love my students. And so I have so many proud moments, right, of meeting students who were unsure of themselves. They didn't really know if they could do the job. You get them in, you coach them up. And then the next thing you know, they've been with you for four years and I can I can put the program, at least the day-to-day kind of management of the program into their hands. And so that proud moment, of remembering like this freshman who came in that was like terrified to get on the phones, who is now commanding a room, leading training, doing all the things that I would do, saying all the things that I would say, like really managing the program, right? Yeah. So you have that. I, I, and I have dozens and dozens and dozens of just like these proud moments of just watching people go on. And then not only that, knowing them, because I was an alum, right? Or I am an alum. And so they yeah. they become fellow alum alumni and seeing them in their careers now, and it's just like, and knowing, like knowing that the reason they got their first job that led them to where they are now is because they were in the phone program. Very proud, very, very, very proud to have contributed in that way. That's proud. So, that's one. The other is you sound
1: like a proud parent. As
0: well. I, oh, I just and I didn't want to use those because they're adult. Do- you know, we're all like you know, but I just just so proud of them. Seriously, it sounds
1: very sincere.
0: Yeah, I am. Um. So the other piece is when I was at Georgia Southern. There was uh, this group, um, they're Black alumni who graduated between 1965 and 1985, and um, they referred to themselves as the first 500, or really this, the Sweetheart Circle Gang, and then we rebranded them as the first 500 um, with their with their input, of course, right? So I'm very proud of having worked with that group because we were able to get so much done in the way of what they wanted to accomplish as alumni for for our alma mater, right? So we endowed a scholarship. We worked together to get a um, a book published um, about their personal stories at the university. And then also got historical marker put in one of the, like the center of our historic campus um, commemorating uh, the students who desegregated uh, Georgia Southern. And I'm extremely wow. proud to have been a part of that project because you had people who were disengaged and they didn't feel like they were heard but they wanted to leave a legacy they wanted their stories to be known and just like everything about that project really like met their expectations and it took several years to pull off so we had to stick with it and and just different changes and leadership and both at the volunteer level and then at our advancement shop level anyway just really proud of that because i think that that's what the work is about at the end of the day like meeting the donors yeah understanding what they want to do for the institution and working with them to accomplish those goals and it wasn't all money they wanted student engagement so they came back and got to speak to students about their experiences they got to you know put that book of essays together to talk about their experiences they got to so they had the whole legacy part and the whole impacting current students part that gives you the warm and fuzzies and i'm just glad that i got to work on that
1: that's a great story i want to go back to you for a second okay so this this is a it's a, a little bit of a different kind of question so we we've heard about your career path so far but talk thinking about today. Yeah. I would love to hear um, not what you do, but how you do it and when you do it. And, okay. and by that, I mean sort of like your work style, right? Yeah. Like your your flow. Because I think it, go back even just a few years to before the pandemic. I mean, a lot of people's would have been well. I show up at the office, you know, at nine o'clock, and and I work, and I take a lunch break, and then at, you know, five o'clock I leave, and you know, I don't usually work weekends except for maybe reunion and homecoming and, and things like that. Yeah. But I feel like the world has changed so much and there's technology. If you're willing to share, maybe just kind of a little insight into because everybody's different. Yeah. And and my work day, I, I still try to get my head around it. They somebody once told me the best part of owning your own business is you get to choose which ninety hours of a week you want to work. <laughs>
0: But you're going to work those 90 hours, right? <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. There's some truth to that, but um, it's not always a good thing. But what what is your flow like? What's good? Just yeah. give us some insight into that. Are you structured? Is every day different? Is every day the same? What time do you start?
0: Between 830 and nine o'clock every day. The, the day the day get started. So I um, typically will hop on modern technology, hop onto teams, say good morning to my team, right? So, cause we, we do a lot of communication through that.
1: Are you in the office five days a week, zero days a week?
0: I work three days in, two days out.
1: Okay. Is that pretty standard at permanent?
0: Actually, I learned recently that it's not. Uh, we are in a very good position in Office of Development to have that that level of freedom and flexibility. I am um, in the office Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays. I can be out Thursdays and Fridays. Sometimes some days I still go in just because I like to be in the office environment sometimes and not work from home. But so I keep a two-week to-do list, um oh. little handy book. I get a lot of satisfaction from writing down tasks and like checking them But A
1: hey, handwritten, like you'll look out two weeks and say, here's it, here's what I'm gonna hey, do. I
0: like it handwritten. I've tried to do Trello board. I've tried to, I've tried all of the technology. It just. Does, it doesn't work for me. It's not the same. I keep
1: mine in a Google doc. And, do you? Okay. Yeah. Which I can actually access on my phone and I've yeah. tried, you know, there's all kinds of different applications, but that's the one I keep coming back to. Yeah. But you keep yeah. yours handwritten. Handwritten. And do you do it every two weeks? You do a fresh one or how is that? like Yes.
0: So what I will do is I will, I just carry over right? And so there are some things, obviously, they have priority, those get highlighted, and I make sure I get those first. But I will just, every two weeks, I'll just keep continue to add to it and then move it. In my next two weeks, I, everything that didn't get done, that stuff that really needs to get done, gets prioritized, yeah. right? And then I'll do those first. And then I just keep doing it every two weeks to make sure that I'm working through my projects. I said all that to say, I consult my to-do list <laughs> to see what I need to do. I, I typically block off work time, right? Because I manage a team. Yep. But but I also I'm a player coach. Right. So I have my own projects that I have to work on as I'm, you know, working with my team to help them do the things that they need to get done.
1: So what percentage if you had to break down your week, what were a typical day? And I'm just uh, speaking averages. No, no. How much time do you spend like in meetings versus like this uh, is, I'm, I'm blocking this off to get actual work done? Is oh like half, damn half, <laughs> Mostly meetings.
0: It, I will tell you, it feels like a lot of meetings lately, which which goes into that. It feels like a lot of meetings.
1: You ever read Death by Meeting?
0: I, I haven't, but will it give me some tips on how to deal with <laughs> being in a lot of meetings? <laughs>
1: I'll send you a copy. It's worth
0: reading. Hey, listen, I will read it. Please send it to me. Is it on audible? I, I would love to hear. It. But yeah, I would say about in a week, I'll, I'll do in a week, about I feel like 40% of my time is spent in meetings.
1: Do you feel like that's too
0: much? Y- yeah. I do. But I will say this. Uh, we're very good here, I think, about not just having meetings to have meetings. So even if it's booked, if I I just did this last week, I'm like, it's on the calendar. I can't I don't see a need to have this meeting. Here's some information for you all. And I will see you like at the next meeting. So in, in a lot of people do that. Um. So some of it is standing meetings, you know, just like weekly check ins. Some of it is project based. So I can see the end in, in, in the future, right? I'm like, okay, we're only going to be doing this for like three weeks or for six weeks. So I check my to-do list. I look and see when on that day that I can get my work done. Do all the administrative stuff, answering emails, approving stuff for budget, blah, blah, blah. Then I, you know, start working on my work. I have a really fun lunch group. So we do get lunch, right? Lunch group on Mondays um, where we go head out and get lunch. That's my Monday. And then I just spend the rest of the time on Monday just finishing out my work. A lot of my other days, though, are just they're just meetings, just back to back meetings for most of the day.
1: You try to keep all your work within the typical work day, like Monday through Friday, nine to five.
0: I should be better about that, Dan, um, but I am not. And so on the days that I have a lot of meetings, um, just so that I can stay on top of that to do list and make sure that I'm not falling behind on any of my projects. I will, you know, take some home or, you know, start my work day like Sunday afternoon sometimes. Um, especially during our busy seasons, I would—that's uh, just my nature. I think I just don't want to get behind, right? It's
1: or slippery slope, though. You start it it
0: is. It's, it's certainly. I wouldn't advise anyone to get into the habit of doing it, right? It. I would say there are seasons where that should be appropriate, but you know, there there are times, busy times, giving days, year end, that type of stuff. But if you find yourself doing it all the time, then. There might be an opportunity to look during those, those weekdays, right, those work days, and say, ah, what can be moved here? How can I take control of my calendar and um, get a little bit of this, this work time back so I can actually get some work done? But yeah, it's just at, every day, I would say most days are different, different problems to solve, different things to adjust. We're constantly moving in annual giving, as you know, but the way that I kind of keep everything together. um, is just through my to do list. Because I have, like I said, I have my own projects, not just managing. So
1: I hear you. Well, Gloria, I have one more question for you. Sure. Um, and that is for the listeners out there, if there's anybody who's just starting out or, you know, really kind of ramping up their career, what advice do you have for them? If it's just maybe just if you could only offer one piece of advice to somebody who's just getting started or kind of, really getting going, but wants to get on the right track as it relates to being successful, whatever you want to define success to mean, what would your advice be to them?
0: I would say, I would say to always be curious, continue to learn as much as you can about this field uh, so that you can stay on top of best practices and just the things that are working well um at other institutions so that you can learn how to bring some of that back to your own institution Um, so just be curious always learn about what we're doing Um, because it's really creative work it's interesting work so there's always new things to learn right so you have that and i would say find a mentor early find a mentor early because that person who has been in the field for a while has been through many of the things that you've been through has asked many of the questions that you are asking yourself about where you should go what you should do next uh, they can help you with everything from interview prep to looking at your resume. They can be, Mentors are there to help you and they can be sponsors for you, put a good word in for you. So be curious, know all you can know about your field, do your job, do it well and find a mentor.
1: Gloria Gooseby, it is always a pleasure to talk to you.
0: Same. Love talking to Dan Allaby.
1: Well, Thank you for being on the program. We will talk to you soon.
0: To learn more about our membership program and everything AGN has to offer, visit our website at annualgivingnetwork.com.